And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. No Joe today, no Alex either, but you get me, Seb, and you're also going to get Stuart James, and we're going to talk about Swansea City. Swansea's story has taken a little bit of a nosedive over the last half decade. Obviously, once upon a time, they were the club of the Supporters Trust, the glorious rise, uh, the back from the brink story. That's turned sour over the last couple of years, and it, it probably hasn't received some of the attention, as much attention it was probably due and Stuart's really great. There's no, no no finer reporter than Stuart James on Swansea City. And uh, he's had a, a front row seat on the goings on over the last couple of years. And, and just where the club has declined and the situation that now exists between the ownership and the fans and the team. It's a mess. And uh, Stuart does his very best at explaining it to us. Before we get to him, let's talk about The Athletic and some of the work they've been doing with Arsenal at the moment. Because it's been great. David Ornstein was obviously first to the Gunnosaurus story. And that was... Um, bizarre and it had an even stranger ending but their coverage was great and amy lawrence has uh, recently been doing a little bit on how it was that they were able to afford the thomas party signing could be a could be a massive deal for arsenal over the next couple of years and uh, amy describes just uh, where the finances came from what role the cronkies uh, played in that transfer everything you need for it and if you do want to uh, to sign up we've got a, we've got a special offer at tifo so if you go to theathletic.com forward slash tifo take advantage of a uh, an introductory one pound per month offer do take advantage of that because some of their work recently has been has been really really excellent now let's get to Stuart. So before we get to Stu, I'm just going to give a quick plug to um, the film Jack to a King um, because I rewatched it for the first time in a few years today. It's not, you know, it doesn't come with all the sort of the bells and whistles of uh, a lot of the, the Amazon documentaries out at the moment and doesn't have that same kind of gloss. But as a as a bit of storytelling, it's, it's essential in understanding where Swansea came from, what they were, uh, what they had to endure to even get to the Premier League. And also um, for understanding the context of, of the conversation we're about to have because I I think what's unique about Swansea is in the first instance the kind of the relatability of their story unfortunately uh, an awful lot of clubs know what it is to um, to um, fear for their, their right to exist very few kind of reached the heights that Swansea did and then suffered a, a sort of a um, I, I wouldn't say decline in status but a, just a um, a very strange change in identity I think and that's why we're having Stu on. Thank you so much for joining us, Stu. Uh, real pleasure, Seb. Real pleasure. Nice to be on. Thank you. Let's go back to, well, let's go back to where Jack to a King ends, actually, and 2011. Um, I remember first being drawn um, to the Swansea story um, because, well, it was so seductive for very obvious reasons. And around that time, I, I don't think there was a club in the country that was more admired or a, a chairman that was kind of more loved. What do you remember of that time? Incredible time looking back um, because 
They were, and quite quite rightly as well at the time, lauded as the model club, weren't they? You know, everyone um, saw Swansea, that blueprint, in several ways. Um, we can talk about on the pitch, where they had a really clear playing philosophy, um, an attractive playing philosophy as well. Uh, it probably started with Roberto Martinez, and, and even when people moved on, probably with the exception of Paolo Sosa, whether... They were think that they came close to getting into the playoffs that season, but the football that, that there was certainly a shortage of goals. But that apart, there was this continuity with even when managers came and went that they um, that they carried on playing what became known as the Swansea way, and and all the while off the field you had this fantastic story as well because you had essentially local local businessmen who saved the club when it was very close to going out to the gone out of the Football League and, and when it was in a hell of a mess, who were still at the helm, who'd been there seeing this club uh, through the divisions, playing this really nice brand of football. And you also had supporter representation on the board, which I think was another really big thing. And um, for that reason, uh, everyone looked at Swansea and thought, you know, if we're going to try and find a way to get to the top without throwing loads and loads of money at it, we haven't got a wealthy benefactor. Then you looked at Swansea and thought, that's a really, really good plan to follow. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was an amazing story that obviously culminated in that promotion to the Premier League under, under Brendan Rodgers when they won the, the playoff final 4-2 against Reading. And then I think a lot of people probably wrote Swansea off that summer and certainly that, that season ahead when they thought they'd, they, they'd struggle and go straight back down. And obviously... Something very different happened in, I think I can remember the first game was live on Sky, if I remember right, against Man City on a Monday night, I believe. And I think Swansea lost 4-0. But they played some really good stuff that night. And and people were quite fascinated by the extent to which they retained the ball at that time. It was, I think possession-based football was, the Premier League was was, was certainly coming round to that by that time. But it was quite novel for a, for a team that had won promotion to go and do what Swansea did. So... They were a fascinating club in many ways, as I say, in terms of how they played, in terms of how it was run. To be fair to Swansea on that night, I think if I remember rightly, that Man City game um, was actually Sergio Aguero's debut. So it was. To, didn't, to didn't he, did he come on and did he score? Come on and score. Was like, oh, he, he scored start, that thirty-yarder um, as his first goal in the Premier League, and then he got to, uh, there was a, like a David Silver cutback, which he which he tucked in, I think. So it was. Um, but I remember Michel Vaughan playing the game of his life that night. Um, yeah. So there is a reason why we're having this conversation now. Um, at the beginning of October, um, it came out via the company's, web, uh, company's house website um, that Steve Kaplan, um, who is a majority owner of uh, Swansea City, of the consortium that owns Swansea City even, um, had resigned as a director. I went on the Swansea City website today and there's still no reference or clarity as to why this has happened. And also um, there's been a communication from the Sports Trust um, who are also none the wiser. We're going to come back to this in a little bit more detail later. But what I want to do with Stu, if we can, is let's chart the journey between 2011 and the present day. Mm. Um, and I suppose the most obvious waypoint um, is July 2016, when an American consortium led by Kaplan um, and business partner Jason Levine acquired a controlling stake of the club for around £17.5 million. What was it about that sale and the dynamics of it and the way it was undertaken that created the kind of the fractures that followed and deepened and widened widened as a result of the sale? 
Yeah, I think fundamentally there's obviously been a huge issue with the supporters' trust over time. And, you know, the trust has always maintained... Uh, bear in mind, the trust, I think, is probably some important to say. So, they, so they've got, I think it's right, saying 21.1% stake in the club. And um, they have, have always maintained that the trust was excluded from negotiations over the over that ownership change. Um, I mean, it's been a long, drawn-out case, this, and it may well end up in court. I think there's every chance it will. And... Um, an action could end up being taken against the buyers. It could end up being taken against the sellers. It's it's, it's a very messy, um, messy situation. So, and, and and interestingly, I mean, I was listening back to a few things today, and one of the things I listened to was when they were first presented. Well, it was uh, Jason Levy in there, who's um, one of the majority uh, sort of shareholders, along with uh, Steve Kaplan, and uh, you know the co-chairman of DC United. And, and he's speaking alongside Hugh Jenkins in July 2016 at the Liberty Stadium uh, and kind of explaining how they've come to get involved in the club. And there are some questions that day around the trust. And clearly at that point, the trust had made it clear that they weren't happy with what had gone on. It's quite uncomfortable watching that footage back and seeing Hugh Jenkins and Jason Levian Struggling to answer the question, really, and the question was posed towards the effect of, you know, should the trust feel let down? Um, have they a right to feel let down? And then April the following year, Kaplan and Levian attended a fans forum. Uh, yeah, April 2017. And, and it was then when they faced, you know, some difficult questions. And, and rightly so, a lot of people would say that, that Levian said, and, and I've got the quote here, is, and this is an hour and a half this forum went on for, and, and he says, he's been asked about the trust situation. He says, when we first learned of the opportunity to invest in Swansea City Football Club, we met with some of the shareholders, not including the trust, and we were told at that time that for us to proceed with the transaction quietly and for us to discuss the terms of that transaction, we should not engage with the trust. So I'm sure that was probably something that other people didn't want him to come out and say that day, but he did say that. And... And that was an admission, obviously, that, you know, the other shareholders, some of them, who I, who we can't be sure, but it, it, it basically advised Kaplan and Levin to stay out of it. Now, there might be a counter story to that, but that issue has never gone away. And it's rumbled around in the background um, for the last four years. At times, it's got worse, perhaps coinciding with when things have got bad on the pitch, but it's never, never gone away. And, you know, and it won't until we probably end up with some sort of... Um, some sort of court case. So um, the other thing around the takeover that I think made things really, really messy, Seb, is that they retained people like Hugh Jenkins, who Hugh should have gone at that time. And I think if we were to get Hugh on here, <laughs> I'm sure he won't admit it publicly, if you were to speak to him, speak to him privately, put it that way, I'd be surprised if Hugh didn't say that. I can't say he would, but deep down, his feelings must be I should have left Swansea City the moment we sold. And we had this bizarre situation where he sold some of his stake. I mean, he still is a director. He still has, I believe, around 5% of shares, but he doesn't have any uh, any, any sort of voting uh, rights. Um, he sold, but he was there, sat next to Jason Levian that morning, July 2016, as the chairman of the club still. And they wanted him to stay on in that role. And when you look at that press conference back, I mean... 
they Jason can't speak highly enough of Hugh. You know, I think Hugh has a tremendous football mind. He said, you know, we're going to rely heavily on Hugh. We wouldn't be he actually says we wouldn't be making this investment without Hugh's commitment to the club moving forward and without his partnership. And he later is asked in this press conference about new signings, and he says the biggest signing we've made so far is the guy to my right. <laughs> so you know that's how it was in July two thousand and sixteen. I think that sat. Well, I know that sat uncomfortably with a lot of supporters. It's a very difficult issue because, you know, the bottom line is Hugh Jenkins and uh, and a number of others were there to save the club, putting money in when other people didn't at a time when Swansea City were, you know, really um, fighting to survive in every sense on the pitch and off the pitch. And in a way, you can probably look at it and say, well, do you know what? They were perfectly within their rights to sell. The questions would surround, was that sale handled in the correct and proper manner in terms of the trust? Some people would say, should they have done more due diligence on the people they were selling to? And then I think the other issue, which I don't think really, you know, Hugh and others have a leg to stand on, is that actually when they sold, they should have just left. And then you you had this really awkward situation. You and I attended some of these games where, where it really became toxic the Liberty Stadium and uh, Hugh Jenkins sat in the director's box um, was uh, was taking the brunt of that 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 criticism and it would be difficult to believe that that didn't impact on the pitch at times as well it just Liberty went from being such an amazing place to go to quite a poisonous place to go and watch football so sorry that's a long answer but it, it, it's a it's a hell of a mess really and it, it was from the start just want to I um go back to a couple of things you mentioned firstly yeah like in terms of what a good place the liberty was to watch football so mm. one of my, my one of my favorite um i don't do so much match reporting anymore but um one of my favorite memories was covering swansea against burnley and for people that haven't been or don't know the um the press box at the liberty stadium is is open so it's just part of the concourse essentially you walk up and you know fans your, your desk is at the front but fans are able to sort of walk past you and and you know you can mingle and chat to people and stuff and uh, Fernando Llorente scored a uh, very, very late winner. It was um, a couple of months, I think, after Paul Clement first um, first it, when, when Paul Clement first arrived, and sort of initially um, sort of instilled a little bit of rigidity and a little bit of um, I'm not quite sure what. I mean, obviously, it didn't you know pan out the long term, but it was a great moment because Llorente scores. Um, it's a critical moment on the way to survival. And I'm sat there trying to trying to get to, try, trying to um, trying to meet my deadline, and I had about four different fans on my back celebrating whilst I'm trying to type. And my my laptop was never really the same again after that day. And then fast forward to the Brighton game that you you, you mentioned. We talked yeah. a little bit before we started recording about this. The other one is probably um, Newcastle at home when Newcastle won by a single Jamal Lascelles goal to nil. Um, oh, <laughs> and when a when a football stadium turns, and, and people think that sort of um, journalists and fans can be a bit melodramatic about this, I don't really agree because I think when a, when a football stadium turns, it can be amongst the most uncomfortable places you could possibly wish to be in. And I remember sitting there as a kind of a, a little bit voristic because I, I'm an outsider, I'm not a Swansea fan, um, but sort of having this club that you, you sort of have a little bit of an attachment to because you you see ideals in it and you see what it's become. It, it was really really unpleasant. I think the thing that that struck me is whenever, whenever a supporters' trust is is circumvented, 
um, allegedly circumvented. The obvious question is to ask why that is, why it was that sort of they were advised that a supporters trust wouldn't like to hear the the kind of the proposal or be part of the negotiations of a of a of a new investor potentially. That's 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 the thing that stays with me, Stu. It was quite a thing, wasn't it, Seb, for Jason Evans to come out with that day to say that, you know, and, um, you know, you can't change that. This isn't like me quoting a source or something like that, you know, an off-the-record steer. You know, anyone can go and listen to that audio from that from that forum as I as I did earlier. Um, yeah, it, it, none of that sat very well at all. I mean, I... It's interesting what you say about liberty. I mean, it's probably important that I say, isn't it, that you know, I'm I'm a season ticket holder there. I I don't have a long-standing relationship with Swansea City Football Club. I mean, I think hopefully don't mind me sort of saying all this. Is my I was probably quite emotionally detached from football for a little while. Where where when my playing career finished uh, and I hadn't watched anyone else during that point, I was just uh, you know playing. Um, uh, then I go and um, work and and cover matches and. And that's what it is work, you know. Yeah, it's great work playing, being paid to watch football. And then around about, um, my son was four, I think, and I was, and I was thinking he was really passionate about football. And I was thinking, where am I going to take him? And I, and hopefully this, this story is relevant because it's. I took him to Swansea one afternoon. They played Everton. They drew nil nil. It wasn't a very good game. But the reason I took him to Swansea is because it was such a friendly club. It it was a community club. And I thought, I'm going to take him. And I also thought he'd be safe there. He'll enjoy yeah. watching the football, the way Swansea play. And um, and he'll have a nice experience. It won't be too big for him, too daunting. But it will be, you know, it'll, the whole thing will be pleasant. What I didn't know when I took him that afternoon was that he'd go and fall in love with it there and then. And that, and that is exactly how it happened. And, and the next thing I end up getting swept along with it and I'm a season ticket holder he's been a season ticket holder there for four years now you know since he was five and and, it, and he absolutely loves it but to see the liberty how it was and to see what it became I mean there were times during that season you've talked about there with the Brighton game and the season he ended up going down where I you know I'd take him to games and I'd think I'm not sure I want him there no and, and that's an awful thing to say and, and he did still keep going and he did still sit through it all but when you've got you know and I don't not the supporters for doing it at all because they were so upset and frustrated and they feel like, and they certainly feel like that now, that they're not being listened to and people aren't communicating with them and telling them what's going on at their football club. And so when they're singing, you know, you greedy bastards get out of our club, which is what they were, and they were obviously directing that at those who had sold and who were still sat in the director's box, it, it was just it was just a million miles away from what, you know, the Liberty Stadium used to be when it was, you know, hymns and arrows and all the rest. And and so it was sort of sad to see that 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 transition. But and I don't know where the trust go from here. I mean, yes, when when the trust is circumvented on things, exactly as you say, you sort of, well, why would you do that? What What is it you, you don't want them to know? And, you know, um, some will counterclaim and say, well, the trust had always maintained that they'd never want to sell, you know, but I don't know. It doesn't. None, none of that sits very well at all, um, and and it's yeah, it's it's just it's just a sorry, a sorry situation really, um, and 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 as I say, to see what the club was and what it now is, it, it you know it's such a a fractured club now, and and whereas Swansea's success, as I see it, was built on being this this club where you know that was greater than the sum of its parts really. I mean, I suppose also, like, it was 
it was the kind of the model of, of what a supporters trust could achieve. Um, I remember a couple of years ago doing, doing some reporting down there and, and there were an awful lot of negative things said specifically about the trust function and how it had kind of been diluted and how it deteriorated. Um, are you able to characterize what the kind of the dynamic between the fans and the supporters trust is at the moment? So I became a member of the trust last year. Um, I don't know why I didn't sign up before. It wasn't a conscious decision not to, but it disappoints me when I look at the number of people who are members of the trust, Seb, because I don't know what people would think, you know, what Swansea's average gate is. I don't know, you know, average gate in times when people can go to the stadium. Yeah, sure, sure, I don't sure. know what it was last season, 16,000, 17,000, something like that. It must have been, I don't know, um, uh, around that mark. And, and in my mind, I'd have thought there'd be a, like 10,000 trust members. You know, I don't know, the same number of trust members, almost season ticket holders. I haven't got the exact figure in front of me now, but I know when I was told it, I was really, really alarmed. I've got in my head that it's somewhere around a couple of thousand, something like that. It, and I just thought, crikey, um, you know, the trust has been around for a long time. I don't know how many members it's lost over time or whether it's not had, you know, people haven't got... You'll hear an awful... You look on social media and there will be people, the trust will try and push for people to join. And I want people to, because I think, you know, the more people that are involved in the trust, even if you're not particularly happy with what the decisions it's made over time, um, then, then you know, the more powerful um, we can be as a, as a supporter group, because um, you need that kind of unity. But you'll get an awful lot of people to answer your question, moaning about the trust, saying the trust haven't done enough, saying the trust, you know, should have done more at the time of the takeover, saying the trust should have done more the other day with the announcement you mentioned. But it's difficult for them because, yes, the trust would have known at the board meeting two weeks before that... Um, you know, Steve Kaplan's status was going to change and that he would be standing down as director, but that doesn't mean that they're in a position to publicly announce things like that. So some people just don't understand that, and then that then colours their perception of the trust and they think the trust are holding things back from people. You know, you're you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm sure they, you know, some things could have been done better over time, but that's like everything. Ultimately, at the minute, I think, you know, if you're, if you're asking me what I think supporters should be doing, then I think they should be signing up to be part of the supporters trust in trying to, you know, if you're not happy about something, then, then, you know, it's, it's the whole thing, isn't it? You know, with like the, you know, the election or whatever, then you should always vote no matter what. And I feel like that's the case with the trust now, be part of it. And if you don't, if you don't like something, the way it's being done, then, then say something, but don't just sit there on social media and tweet something negative about the trust. But yeah, it isn't, I can't paint a picture there, Seb, where it's all rosy, because it's not, you know, and, and that's another issue, obviously, that not only have you got, you've got this dislike for for the owners, you know, you, it's not as if you've got got the fans galvanising together in perhaps the same way that they would have been years ago when they were driving Petty out of the club, you know, so, um, yeah, it's an, a, another problematic situation, really. We've talked about, we're going to get to Kaplan, um, mm. because obviously that's the, that's the kind of crux of the issue here. But I think it's important to kind of to describe just how nebulous the ownership structure actually was. Because um, when it was first presented to me, please correct me if I've got this wrong, but um, when it was first presented to me, it was a new American investors um, in the kind of the typical form. So, you know, two people um, investing £75 million pounds for, in exchange for a shareholding. Um, and, you know, as a result, control of the club. In reality, um, from conversations with fans, of course, there's a lot of people that still don't really understand actually the makeup of this ownership group and what these people sit on top of. 
I've had it explained to me a couple of times and still don't really understand. But um, is it sort of a a lot of kind of unseen people? I mean, how, how many different how many different people are actually involved in the um, in the ownership group or who were involved in the original purchase? Yeah, that's probably the easiest way. I mean, it's a very good question. In short, Seb, there's a total lack of transparency here. And and going back to that original press conference I mentioned, July two thousand sixteen. You know, one of the early questions is about you know percentages. And, and uh, you know, Hugh Jenkins says at that point, in quotes, the percentages will be confirmed at a later date. Well, they never were. No. And, and you know, it's as simple as that, really. It wasn't until um, BBC Wales, um, actually, uh, about 18 months later, uh, ran a story where they where they revealed that, you know, it wasn't just Captain and Levin and that there was another 25 other investors involved here, all with quite... Uh, sorry, a lot of them with quite small stakes. I mean, Landon Donovan was one of them. It, it was a real you know, sort of on the face of it, diverse group of people. Now, at the forum, um, prior to that, what I mentioned to you, that the forum in April 2017, it had been asked from the floor there about the makeup of the rest of this consortium. And um, and, and Captain, I've, I'm 99% sure it was him, not Levian, said that... Um, uh, you know, essentially they were friends of theirs and no one had anything to worry about. He says, like, you know, this isn't, there isn't another government involved or another country involved in, in this in any way. But again, you know, it, it, nothing ever, has ever been sort of said definitively on that other than what the BBC revealed. And when I spoke to someone, you know, prior to coming on here earlier in the week about this, you know, they said, well, you won't get that information, Stu. It's just not out there. And, you know, I believe the trust have asked for it, but they've never been you know, given that. So, you know, what is, it comes back to your earlier point about, you know, circumventing the trust. What is there to hide here? Exactly. That. You know, it, it just doesn't sit well, any of that. So, so what we, we do know effectively um, is that obviously they purchased at 68% of the club. I think the club was valued at about a hundred million around then. So roughly, you know, 68 million pounds and that Kaplan and Levian are the largest, largest shareholders in that group. And I think I'm right in saying with almost 30% of the consortium's shareholding between them if that makes sense Seb. so um yeah that's that's another thing that you just um you know if we're football fans we want to know who's putting money into our football club who's bought the football club who owns the football club who's making the decisions at the football club and and they seem like quite basic things to want from to want to know um but for whatever reason, you know, that information um, hasn't been made available and, and it's not possible to, you know, access that information because of where the accounts are filed. So it's a strange one. Sorry again. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I think also, like, and this is a question which is becoming far more common and which um, many supporters across the, um, across the, well, up and down the country and I guess up and across Europe um, are asking of their ownership is, why do you own my football club? Yeah. And 
I'm guessing, see, I mean, I'm, I'm a cynic, uh, I'm getting older, what can I say? Um, but I would say whenever you're, I mean, this would, this would be one of the first three questions probably that any supporters trust would ask. Yes. Um, how are you underwriting the security of my club? Um, and that's particularly relevant at a place like Swansea because of what's happened in the recent past. Um, but also why, what is the motivation here? Because I think the, I, I don't think I know the age of the kind of the, um, you know, the vanity purchase and the plaything. it's over because football isn't that anymore. The secret's out. All these signposts exist as to what you can get out of football as a businessman. And as far as I know, certainly when, um, when I was last down in Swansea, no, there wasn't a single fan who could answer that question, who'd ever felt that there had been a true objective communicated to them, which is, I think, the worst thing of the lot, because it's it's fine for someone to come in and say, I want the best of this club, but I don't necessarily have the resources to give you that sort of, you know, that, that, that magical journey over the rainbow, because there are very few people in the world that can do that in modern football now. Um, it's another thing to fail to give people something to buy into, fail to present a kind of uh, uh, a communal objective. Um, and at Swansea, I, given that probably uh, less than a decade ago, Swansea probably had the clearest mission statement of any club in the pyramid, not just in the Premier League, I'd say of, of any club in the 92 at that point. Now they're at the other end of that, uh, 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 other end of that spectrum, which is an amazing thing to be able to say. Is that still the case that there's no sort of, you know, there's a vague, obviously, um, a, a vague interest in getting promoted. That's not really the same as having an objective or standing for something. But is there is there any clarity over this? No, absolutely nothing. And when you say is it still the same, I think it's got worse in my mind. How so? Because, well, I, I wrestle with this in my mind. I think, why did you get involved in the first place? Because we can't, the answers they've given, whether at that form or whether at their day they were unveiled, and we can't, if I keep quoting those, it's because they've hardly spoken apart from that. Do you know what I mean, yeah. Seb? It's, it's not like there's I can draw on lots of things um, uh, to, to sort of you know explain why they've done certain things because because they've done very few interviews over time, um, and you know that that they were inevitably going to get asked that that day. You know what? Why Swansea City? And and, and the answer then was sort of you know um, full of jargon. Really, it, it didn't. I didn't listen to it and sort of think, okay, I believe you here. You know, you you. I I look at it and I can't. In my mind, I'm thinking. You must have just done this to think, we'll have the club for a few years, we'll wait for a couple more TV deals to come along and we'll move it on. There wasn't, you know, they mentioned potential. I don't see how there was, even you and I describing that lovely story, I, I don't see untapped potential there. You know, there was talk of it increasing the liberty. Well, yeah, you know, it used to be sold out, but I don't think there were 10,000 people on a waiting list like there was at White Hart Lane and that kind of thing. I just don't see what more they could have done with Swansea City other than potentially sell it on. And it's funny, like, you know, we started at the top talking about Jack to King, and I used to really enjoy watching that. And <clears throat> now I wouldn't put it on. And a lot of Swansea fans won't put it on because they now believe that was a marketing tool to sell the club. I don't know if it was or not. but Really? It's, yes, absolutely that, yeah. I had no okay. Yeah, that's how it's kind of viewed now by a lot of supporters. We can't say that was definitely the case. Who can? But it doesn't sit well with a lot of people now. And I remember really enjoying watching that film. And, and obviously the, the story is the story. You know, you can't shy away from that. You, you can't try and re rewrite history. It's an amazing story. But 
you know, was that produced with an ulterior motive? Who knows? And were the were, were Kaplan and Levian and others reeled in by by that story and and not just hearing the story but watching that film? I don't know. It, it, people would never admit it if they were, but I don't know why they got involved. And I I feel like two things here. Were those people who had the shares um, duty bound to do do due diligence on Kaplan Levian? When they came in, well, you know, maybe there is kind of a, a point if the club's in your blood, as it is with those people. You know, they, they were part of Swansea City, crikey, you know, a hell of a lot longer than I've been following the club. And, and I don't doubt for one minute that Jenkins loves, Hugh Jenkins loves Swansea City. But if they had sort of looked more into them, I, I don't know, I'd be interested in what kind of answers they would have had. But more more the other way, I can't believe that Kaplan and Levian did their due diligence on Swansea. Because it was unravelling, Seb, before they got involved. Things were going wrong at Swansea City long before that takeover in July 2016. You know, the, the, the season um, had finished with them staying up um, really by the... They finished 12th. That 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 final league position, it how can I say? It feels it like a false la- position. It, it was a false position. Yeah, that that league table, if you looked at it now, it doesn't tell the story of that season. The last eleven games, they picked up twenty points. You know, they suddenly had this run of form that that, that you know took them to a different place in the table and made it seem like everything was fine. Um, a lot of people would know, and it wasn't. A lot of people would have known, and I know you've touched on this in articles. It, the recruitment was had been going wrong for a while, and 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 Hugh was heavily involved in that. He oversaw all of that, you know. And so if Kaplan and Levian had looked at it closely, and, and I believe people did say things to them about this, they would have known that they needed to make changes at that football club, that they couldn't just say, carry on in charge, you, you know, all the people in those roles, carry on as you were, the scouting setup, we'll keep doing it, and we're, okay, we'll bring in some people who will look at some analytics and all the rest. It needed It needed major change in my eyes. And so... That was staring them in the face. And I think if they'd have looked at that in far greater depth, they would have realised that when they came in, they needed to make changes and, and and they didn't. But the weird thing in all of this is, I actually think despite everything we've said so far, I think Swansea could have got away with it. And I think they could have and would have had Brendan Rodgers been appointed in that summer, in July 2016. Brendan Rodgers thought he was coming back to Swansea. Talks had gone on. Uh, during that period when Francesco Guidlin had the contract until the end of the season. Rogers was out of work, having left Liverpool. Brendan thought he was coming back. He'd even you know, looked at properties down in Swansea. He was ready to come back. And then all of a sudden, the phone calls stopped coming. And that coincided with that little purple patch that Guidlin had. And we should say as well, Alan Curtis was in charge for some of that because Guidlin was ill in hospital um, with a, a chest problem. But that purple patch seemed to skew... Hugh Jenkins' thoughts, and and for whatever reason, he decided, and I remember when this was announced, this appointment, and I thought, I cannot believe that, and I know it surprised people at the club. Gwydling got a two-year contract, and Rodgers obviously didn't get the job, and that was a sliding doors moment for Swansea City, because I believe, even everything we've said about the ownership structure, that with Brendan Rodgers there, Swansea would have been okay, because I don't think Brendan would have stood for a lot of the signings that happened, and... um, and you'd have had a far better team on the pitch. So uh, that that really is, for me, a real kind of crossroads for for the club. And, yeah, then obviously Gwydlin was out of a job by the October and, and then that set in train Bob Bradley. And, and really, 
from then on in, Swansea were just another Premier League club, just trying to play survival football, trying to get 40 points, trying to stay up. And they kept circling the plug hole. And if you do that long enough, that's what happened in 2018 when they went down. I think what I what struck me, and this is a kind of cultural change, is yeah. whenever you used to observe things happening at Swansea, um, you'd kind of, um, whatever it may have been, whether it was a kind of managerial decision or a recruiting decision or a sale, you used to kind of nod along and think, yeah, that makes sense. Like, okay, it may not be ideally what the club wants, but given their position in the food chain and, you know, given what their long-term objectives are, I kind of understand, for instance, you know, the reason to renegotiate Wilfred Boney's contract and then sell him because they removed, you know, that, that yeah. release clause, didn't they? And it was kind of, yeah, everything like that seemed typical. But when you look back now and we look at, um, Guidland's the classic example. I mean, I, I remember, I remember sitting next to Ian McIntosh at Liberty once and, um, him saying probably in about September of that season, um, I've only just learned to spell his name and now he's going to be sacked because that's how inevitable it seemed. That's how yeah. short term everything had become. Yes. And then when you look back at, um, if you get, if you, t- if you take a second glance at some of the recruiting decisions and the way in which money was spent, I think you'd say, um, you know, if you were being fair, uh, it worked out well. Um, but some of the decisions weren't probably going through the right processes. So, what I mean by that is that the right people weren't making those decisions. For instance, you know, do a club in Swansea's position, do you spend that kind of money and commit that kind of salary to someone like John Joe Shelby? Maybe, maybe, but you know there's a personality, not problem there, but a personality potentially to overcome. Um, and it's little things that if you look back retrospectively, you kind of you kind of add up and think, your, your point about potential is really what I'm getting at because I, I think it kind of, it needed stabilizing rather than someone just to kind of scattergun transfer decisions and who can we dig out of a black book of, um, you know, managerial options. And one of the moments I, I think about quite a lot is um, Barham to Toomley's um, <laughs> rant on Twitter. Uh, he's uh, Michael Ladrup's agent. Yeah. Um, and him making all kinds of possibly libelous remarks about um, Hugh Jenkins. But just thinking that that was quite a strange thing to happen at a club like, like Swansea, or my perception of what a club like Swansea was. Um, it just seems, I don't know, it just, uh, it's it's very easy to now second guess it and, and think, what was actually happening there? And what were the decisions? And just how, how, how strong was the club's momentum at that point in time? It's a bit of a rabbit hole. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I'm going, to, I'm going to fast forward this um, and I'm going to throw a name at you um, just because there are some very strange quotes attached to it. Jake Silverstein. Um, he, mm. uh, I think August of this year, he became an investor. He was given a uh, spot on the club's board. Um, now, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, history, but um, as far as I understand it, um, his investment is actually um, in the form of a loan to the club. Yeah, convertible um, loan, as I understand it, Seb. Yeah, and that can be converted to shares at a later point, 
And um, here's a sentence that will make everyone think of the social network scene. And if that happens, other shareholders will um, either be given the chance for further investment or their holding will be diluted. Um, I'm not a financially minded person. That sounds very weird. No, no, me. I hope you're not going to ask me to no, explain all that. No, no, just just nod along <laughs> with me and, and and just affirm how weird I'm, it all I'm is. I'm not in. I'm not in. Yeah. <laughs> what is oh, what is that about? I know no, that's I that's, I know. that's not the that's eyebrow question, but I can't get my head around that. That seems very no, strange. No, I don't think any of us can. It, it, it's it's just it's just surreal. I mean, that kind of came from right out of the blue. That and. And now there are all sorts of theories, you know, whether you call them conspiracy theories or what, especially now it's emerged that obviously um, Kaplan is um, no longer a director. Um, you know, and some people think, w- was this investment, if we can call it that in in, in sort of quotes, um, was this investment um, sort of the start of something? Is this paving the way now for, especially with what we know with Kaplan standing down as director to, to sort of, I don't know, take a take a back seat, and eventually Jake Silverstein to come out and to take over. Um, that that you know, some people think that's a, a possibility. These are only theories, and the reason no one can say anything with any certainty is because of the total lack of communication over everything, and 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 that makes it so so difficult to understand what's going on at the football club. I mean, there were some quotes attributed to to um, Silverstein when he um, when, when this was announced it, it appeared on the you know Swansea website and he talked about how much he enjoyed watching the Swans play which I don't know maybe he does enjoy watching I, I've actually got that quote in front of me Stuart I'll go read on it. read, it. I'll read, read it. it out I'll read it I'll read it and uh, people can draw their own conclusions quote I love watching the Swans play the team has developed such a distinctive and engaging style on the pitch and I have a deep appreciation for its fan culture and the club's commitment to its supporters which if I was a Swansea fan I'm not sure um, I'd have been able to get to the end of that sentence um, was he watching like me when when the Swans won one nil at Deepdale you know I, I just uh, at the start of the season and think I love how the Swans play I just don't <laughs> Uh, maybe I'm doing the man a disservice, but it's you reading all that out. It's hard to sort of the picture, deep appreciation it? for the fan culture and the club's yeah, commitment to yeah. its supporters. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not one of them, but I know that's no. not quite how they characterise it. Um, no, no. So the, the whole idea he likes watching the Swans play. The whole idea that he gets the fans' relationship with the club and all that. Then, yeah, it just feels really superficial and disingenuous and yeah all the rest it is it, and, and it's sadly a you know the state of play as far as I'm aware he's had no conversations with the trust whatsoever I think the trust said that in their statement they released this week or um, yeah this, this this week so um you know they they don't really know anything about his um his involvement why he's doing it you know what what his ultimate interests are here his objective you know coming back to your question earlier on and why Swansea why are they doing what they're doing we don't know any of that really yeah it's just another another it's had another layer of of um of, of sort of uh, uh it's almost subterfuge yeah it is in... it is it, it just you know this idea, you know, like someone investing as if it's sort of, sort of, you know, you, you thought, you know, is this, is this the sort of, you know, the, the guy who's coming in to sort of save you, and then you, and then you, and then you, would it, would it be in Swansea City? You never think that anyway, but, but then you read, you know, yeah, it's actually, actually it's not really investment, it's a loan, and, uh, and it's you know, a convertible loan, and all, and, and, and you just, yeah, I, I don't know where any of this is going to. People tell me that um, Kaplan is still very much 
the man calling the shots here. But, you know, to again, to go back to something you mentioned earlier, I just find it staggering that that, that could emerge on Companies House on Monday. And clearly, BBC Sport Wales, who ran a story, put it to Swansea, and Swansea said they wouldn't be commenting. And I want to make it clear when I say this now, that obviously is zero criticism of anyone and you know working day to day at the club or the media department or anyone else for not commenting um you know they're effectively saying what they've been told to say um but how staggering that that can come out a really significant move bear in mind you know we we understand that Kaplan is the is the main man in the majority shareholder and he's stepping down from the board is or his position as a director and and yet the club feel sorry Kaplan and Levian feel there's no need to explain that and what's going on to supporters i find that staggering i i went on the website uh, we were recording this on a um, on a monday evening um on sunday evening sorry and this will be coming out on tuesday but um uh, as of this moment there isn't even a cursory line on the website um no. not not even explaining it but just sort of noting that it has occurred that this change has happened and this is a very significant um change Do you find that remarkable seth i mean i just find that bizarre Absolutely i bizarre. It's the kind of thing that makes me want to ask more questions. Um, I think that a, um, a a football club that is behaving in a healthy way, um, all football clubs are a little bit reserved. They operate a little bit in the dark because that's the that's the kind of the native culture. Um, but you communicate small changes whether people are interested in them or not. When people get interested, it's generally because um, there's a, a vacuum, there's an information yeah. void. Um, and this is just another one. I mean, I, I think it's telling that... Um, Within their statement, um, the Supporters Trust, and this is kind of their key line, I think, um, it is important to our fans that they know, A, who is responsible for making decisions in our football club, and B, what are the intentions of those who own our club? Now, when Supporters Trust ask questions like that, it's really negative. Um, and one of the reasons I want to have you on, man, is because we've covered, um, we've done a, a bit of work on um, Wigan um, and Hull, um, oh. with Adam Crafton, wonderful journalist, um, did brilliant reporting yeah. on both those cases. And they're very, very egregious situations. Um, they're dreadful. They're, they're, they're the kind of the worst nightmare. Whereas I, I, think, I think I characterize Swansea as a kind of, as a sort of the, not crisis, but the situation that's kind of been ignored in the, um, in the mainstream. It's just not quite obviously bad enough. I know that's not the most elegant sentence anyone's ever going to speak on a no. podcast, but I think that's but, fair. I think that's a fair yeah. analysis. It is fair, Seb, but also, and, I, and this came up when I was having a conversation with someone at Club in the Week, and I think the reason this is the case also is because actually it's not been that bad on the pitch. No. And, and actually, they, the owners, have got away with it because of that. Because Potter worked a minor miracle in that first season where, this is the other thing, when I look at, you know, this is how badly recruitment had gone wrong. When you look in that last season in the Premier League, when they ridiculously and I, you know, I love Wilfred Burney to bits, but he should never have been resigned. Resigned, Andre Ayew, as well as he did last season in the Championship, should never have been resigned either. You know, it was a mad deal. Sam Klukas, fifteen million, it was crazy. I'm not going to come on here now and say they shouldn't have signed Renato Sanchez because when he signed, I thought this was blooming amazing. Renato Sanchez is coming to Swansea. Obviously, it didn't work out that way, and no one knew, you know. Um, 
how kind of broken he was for want of a better way of putting it. But I'm not going to try and, you know, rewrite history around that because when he signed, I thought it was good. But some of those other deals were awful. And when Swansea went down, you know, I look at, say, Bournemouth now who've been in the Premier League not at this similar time, five years to Swansea seven. You know, at least they had some assets. They had Nathan Ackley they could get 40 million for. They had Ramsdale they could get 18 million for. They've still got David Brooks there. They'd be able to sell Josh King. Uh, Callum Wilson, 20 million went. So those kind of deals they were able to do, Seb, whereas Swansea, short of Alfie Moore, and they were and Fabianski went for a minimal sum because he had a year left. They were really scrambling around after seven years in the Premier League and after spending decent money in their final season in the Premier League to sell people. They couldn't get people to take Andre Ayew and Wilfred Burney off their hands. And so that's a measure of how badly things had gone wrong leading them into the championship. And I say that in the context of what a good job Graham Potter did the following season when you know, I remember being on holiday on deadline day. I took a screenshot of it. And, and I remember going back to my hotel room and I had like five players on the sort of, I'm sad enough to have the Swansea City updates of the of the <laughs> of, of who'd gone. You know, I'm trying to think Federico Fernandez, Jordan Matt. There was a load of them who went that. that Jordi and Matt, that, did he Jordan, go that day? Yeah, Jordi and Matt. Jordan, yeah. Jordan Ayo, I think, went to Palace on, on the loan. Jefferson maybe. Yeah, it was, it was, there, was a, there was a list of them. Um and and so Potter was just left with this chaos where he then ended up playing, you know, Joe Roden, which obviously has turned into a brilliant success story and Joe rightly getting his chance. Yeah, but, a fabulous player, Joe Roden. Yeah, yeah. Fa- exactly. And and DJ, you know, Daniel James, who wasn't in the team at the start of that season, came into his own. Ollie took on the mantle of being the number nine and it worked out. But Graham Potter also got Swansea playing terrific football. You know, I think we finished 11th, but it didn't really bother me that because I just really enjoyed after years of survival football seeing Swansea playing what I thought of as the is the Swansea way. So because of that, and they had the cut run, they played brilliantly against Man City. The ownership thing, Seb, kind of got forgotten about a little bit. It was in the minds of supporters, but even in supporters' minds, it was probably pushed at times a little bit to the back. You know, I, I it certainly wasn't toxic liberty in the way it used to be in that Premier League final season. And then Last season, obviously, with Steve Cooper, the Swansea end up getting in the playoffs. So, you know, those examples you mentioned with some of the other clubs, Hull end up getting relegated, Wigan do too, albeit, you know, through the, 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 the point deduction. But Swansea weren't knocking around in the lower reaches of the league no. where it probably would have shone a more unfavourable light on things off the field. And even now... You know, as we're talking, I know it's early days, but they've got 10 points from four games and they've only conceded one goal and it's going along, you know, I'm touching wood here, uh, quite quite nicely. But but it's not going along and it hasn't done for the last few years well because of anything the owners have done. You know, Steve Cooper and, and Graham Potter have been, in my mind... You know, working with, with one hand, maybe two behind their back the whole time. And I look at some of the investment elsewhere. So, so yeah, there are interesting examples you make. And I do see parallels. But, you know, the question that I, I think a lot of fans would probably feel and worry is, you know, well, um, sooner or later, this is going to come to an end. The, the, the work in the, you know, the work in the sort of oracle on the field. And, you know, players will, will go on. They won't be replaced. And then... And, and the academy will run dry. The academy that we know is now going to become Cat 2 instead of Cat 1 because there's another cost saving going on there. And and sooner or later, Seb, it, you know, things are going to unravel on the pitch unless something dramatically changes. And I can't see off the field anything dramatically changing. It almost feels to me, I, the last last game I covered was the 2-2 with Leeds United a couple of years oh, ago. What a game that was, by the way. Wasn't Brilliant it? game of football. And, and 
it's it's the perfect emblem for what you've just said because if you were an outsider and you knew nothing about the previous few years maybe you you, you watch that game and you come away from the liberty and you think all's fine here okay they've had a little bit of a downturn but this is a talented squad you also like there's a, a magnetic figure like McBurney at the club scruffiest bastard in the football league but brilliant <laughs> footballer and just one of those one of those guys that you if you're a fan um you love someone like that i yeah, know he's moved yeah. on and he's got his chance and hopefully he'll show what a good player he is at sheffield united but yeah like when you have players like that they go a long way to distracting um from bigger issues because they're the thing in front of your face they're the they're the kind of the the, the players that you want at your football club um, and it was a talented side, and you're quite right. Potter was doing a, like a wonderful job there, and Steve Cooper is a, is a really excellent coach, I think, in my mind. Um, and it's like a, a team achieving in spite of itself because, ridiculously, you could make the argument, I think, that um, if Swansea get through that Brentford semi-final, maybe they beat Fulham um, because goodness knows what happened to Brentford at Wembley. But um, you know, that's uh, and then they're back in the Premier League, and all of a sudden, you you have this kind of this 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 um, superficial sign of success, which completely betrays what, what's gone on for the last couple of years. It's, uh, is, this, is, this the, is this the long-term trend? Is there any reason to think that, um, is, there any, is there any kernel of optimism here? No, in my mind. I mean, the only thing I'll say is it, it doesn't feel like a fantastic championship this season. It, it sounds very cliche, this, but it doesn't feel like there's, there is a Leeds or a West Brom that's certainly not a Wolves of years ago or a... I don't know, a powerful club like a Villa that's underachieving that could get its act together. I don't see that. And and Swansea, the biggest problem would be the lack of depth because Cooper has a small squad. Again, when I see what some of the other clubs have done, the number of signings someone like Forrest have made, or Bristol City, you know, what they've done over time. You know, and, and I think what Potter and Cooper have worked with the last two years. So I it is if there's any optimism, it's that could they get into the playoffs again this season? Yes. And then, you know, then there could be a chance of going up, which, as you right said, that would have been bonkers if Swansea had gone up last season. Yeah. Absolutely bonkers. But they weren't that far off doing it. Um, now, what happens after this year? This is the final season of the parachute payments. Um, so there's going to be another kind of resetting of the button there. Um You'd you'd be really concerned. I also look at it and think, you know, how long before Steve Cooper gets a better offer somewhere? How long before Steve Cooper gets fed up with it? We've heard, you know, comment. He's been quite for Steve Cooper. He's been um, quite outspoken, you know, since early this season, where he's, you know, he made the comments about Peterson leaving on uh, in the wake of the the uh, the recent um, yeah the most recent match where he basically said that I was told on the day of the game by the chief executive Julian Winter that you know to leave him out of the squad and he's been making other noises around we can't afford to lose anyone so he probably thinks also he's you know speaking from a position of power now because he's he's obviously done a good job he's also saying things that are totally fair i don't, I don't you know what, what what's the club worth now so so let's say they they, they they've parted with you know best part of 70 million for a club at the time that was valued at 100 I can't believe they get half their money back now in in the championship and but then how do they get themselves out of Swansea City Football Club the only way to me really which they must want to do let's be honest you know they must want to wash their hands of this and forget it ever happened they've got to get the club back in the Premier League really that's the only way they're going to be able as I see it to shift to shift the football club so to do that 
they're going to have to give the people, the managers, some opportunity to achieve that. Unless they, the worrying thing is they look at it the last two years and think, well, actually, you know, we haven't been a million miles away. It's quite possible we can keep doing it like this and we'll get lucky. Um, but they won't. You know, I don't, I, I don't think they will. And, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's hard to look at this with any sense of optimism and because of those things you've you, you've talked about with Jake Silverstein getting involved and with Kaplan doing what he's doing and and the other thing we should probably mention Seb is that actually you know when Trevor Birch was there we did have someone at the club who was communicating with the supporters Trevor would do you know quite long statements and and often there'd be quite a bit of bad news in those statements and but I know Trevor used to be quite amazed at how well they were received because and and you know I'd say to him that's because you're He's Telling from the people culture, what's going though, on. isn't he? He's been in football for a long time, and it, I think maybe that's the difference, too, really. And he was communicating, said that was a big thing. Even if he was telling you stuff that wasn't great about your club and the state of its finances, he was telling you, you know, you weren't waiting for what we had before, which was sort of Hugh Jenkins' programme notes. You were getting quite a good overview of what was going on. And you've gone from, so you've gone from the programme notes to, to Trevor, to now you've gone to... Nothing again. Not only do you not know really what's going on in terms of day-to-day running, you don't even know why your majority shareholder is no longer a director. And, you know, Julian Winter, who's been brought in as chief executive, I don't know Julian Winter, but what what we do know, and Julian's come out and said this himself, is that he's known the owners for, um, you know, five or six years before they got involved at Swansea. So, you know, maybe unfairly that didn't make me feel good about the situation. You know, I just couldn't help thinking, well... He's going to be doing everything in the owner's interests, and whereas I felt when Trevor Birch was there, he he was basically he was working for Cooper and for the fans as much as he was working for them, and and I don't see that being the case going forward um, with with the structure that's in place now. Um, so yeah, um, who knows who knows where it's all leading, but the, the bottom line is on the pitch at the minute. It's pretty good. It's just such a sad situation, and and not least because there are some really good people at Swansea. Um, mm. Phil on the on the media door is probably the nicest person oh, in the whole God. of the league. Um, yeah, and people who've who've worked um, media around the Premier League and the Football League will tell you that um, you know, you know, sometimes uh, you know, they aren't the nicest people that you run into. But um, everyone at Swansea I've ever met has been an absolute delight. Um, I also want to mention Stephen Carroll because uh, he sells his. Um, his fanzine, Swansea, Swansea, yeah. outside the club shop. Top lad. Yeah, he yeah, is. Man. And he was also, um, he was very generous with his time with me and explaining things that actually were very, very difficult to explain. It's a couple of years ago now, but um, he was always there for uh, to, to give some guidance. And, um, you know, obviously difficult to watch your, your club, um, you know, twist itself into a big knot, really. Um, mm. I'm really glad you mentioned those people, Seb. Sorry, I'm, it's, you know, and I, I should have done really there. So... That's another reason why you know why I end up going to Swansea. In my it's lab the people, Stu. Of course, it is. It, it's the people. One hundred percent. It's because you know you could I could take him to a massive Premier League club and and he and he wouldn't have you know he, he would have just been lost among them. He, you know he he will um, he knows Phil and feels feels brilliant with him. He's just got such He's a, a top man. Such, oh, such a warm personality and um uh, and then you know like George on the car park, people like this who are. <laughs> Just you know, it, they, they sometimes I worry. There's a queue of cars behind us, <laughs> waiting to get into that bloody car park to get to the game. And George is chatting away, asking Zach, you know, about various things. And 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 then we, you know, you, Jonathan Wiltshire, who sadly is not working for the club anymore, the head of media. I mean, Jonathan's probably as responsible as anyone for 
for me spending you know more money at Swansea City than the owners ever have because he because he you know he's such a brilliant man you know and, and when he left you saw people from all over the country not just people who are based down in Wales who are journalists but all over the country all over you know England as well saying you know what what an amazing press officer he he was and that that is it is the people you've hit the nail on the head that 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 is what Swansea City Football Club you know is is all about and I know I think about it. Stevie Carroll's a you know, a, an absolutely uh, brilliant lad, um, and and you know that that is your real. You know, I'm I'm no lifelong Swansea supporter. Steve could tell you, you know, chapter and verse about the club, and he and he cares about it so so deeply. And and he's not expecting his football club to be Man United or Liverpool or Chelsea or Arsenal. He just wants his football club to be run in the right way by good people who are open and honest about their intentions and um, treat the supporters with respect. And it's hard to believe that's the case at this present moment. It is a little bit of a cliche to talk about family clubs and it gets a little bit overused as a term, but it's fitting. I mean, um, just to, to finish up, I'll tell a little story, but last time I was at Swansea, I um, there's a little cut through. Um, the Liberty is built on, uh, for those who haven't been, it's built on, a, it's almost like a traffic island. It, it, that's how it looks. It's, um, you know, um, despite its roots, um, the area's roots even. Um, but there's a little bit of a cut through. So you come off the roundabout and there's a little gap in the hedge where you can where you can hit hop the barrier and then walk in without having to go around um, Frankie and Bunnies mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I remember being um, about 60 yards away from the stadium before um, Phil in his, uh, his very thick South Welsh accent um, <laughs> was greeting me and saying hello and welcoming, welcoming me to the ground. And it shouldn't need saying, but that is not typical of an experience. Um, you know, around football clubs, a lot of very good people around at a lot of very different, um, a lot, lot of different parts of the country. Um, the bad people are very few and far between. Um, but you would struggle to name a better club um, in terms of just, you know, how nice everyone is and how welcoming they are than Swansea City. And, and that's why this conversation is worth having. And um, Stu, thank you for coming on. I, it's, a, it's a really difficult conversation for you because, uh, well, there's so little information. Um, but it's um it's an important one and, and so thank you very very much for taking the time at the end of a weekend no well thank you very much for um discussing all things swansea city and uh lovely to speak to you sir As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 